Good to see everybody. Um, what we're doing is this, for those of you that might be new here. Uh, first of all, it's good to have you here, uh, especially for you to brave the rain. Um, between first service and this service, I looked out, and all of a sudden, here comes the rain like crazy. But what we're doing is we're going through and we're asking this question. At the end of everything, not what do we think about Cornerstone, but the thing that we've been doing with Revelation 2 through 3 is to ask the question, not only what does God think about those seven churches that we've been talking about, but more importantly, we're trying to ask the question as a church, what does Jesus think of Cornerstone? And in it, what we did was is we taught through these seven churches. We brought out different aspects of, of these, these churches. Uh, Ephesus was the church that had, had left its first love. Uh, Smyrna was this church that was being persecuted that we're called to pray for. And so we, we just walked through and we kind of talked through aspects of, of these churches. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of turn you loose for just a little bit. Now, I know a lot of you are going to hate this because you actually have to talk. Now, if you can't handle talking to people, just sit there and when they try to talk to you, just look at them and give them this one. You know, I don't talk to people. And, but um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn you loose and I want you to look across at somebody, and especially for those of you that are verbally challenged, and to say, what do you think Jesus would say about Cornerstone? Okay, now, if you're on the other end of it, what you're going to look back at it is you're going to say, this is what I think about Cornerstone. Then after you're done doing that, you're going to look at the person and say, what do you think about Cornerstone? Then they're going to look back at you, and they're going to tell you, what do you, what do you think that Jesus Christ would tell Cornerstone? All right, everybody got it? Okay, so the next few minutes are yours just to kind of have that discussion amongst yourselves. Go for it. All right. Now, this is what we did last week. Last week, we sent a video camera, and my, some of you might have got asked this question, but we actually asked some of you out in the lobby, what do you think Jesus would say to Cornerstone based upon everything we've taught on? And so just check up on the screen. If Jesus was going to write a letter to the church here, at cor to Cornerstone, addressed to Cornerstone, okay. what's a couple of things you think would be in that letter? Oh, wow. Uh, let's get involved in each other's lives, and um, let's, stop getting let's stop being busy. Let's stop making that the excuse of why we don't do what we need to do. You know, I, love the, I love the heart that you have for, for missions and for, um, for reaching out to the community. Don't be fake. Don't be fake. Nope. Oh, I think he would be happy with us. We're serving the Lord and um, doing many things to bring his kingdom to come. He'd say, he'd say something, wouldn't he? He'd say that the, the Christ would grow more and more in the church. It's just, uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, we've done, Cornerstone has done some some great things over the years but it's it's real easy to get complacent and i think it's easy to to fall into that lukewarm situation and say look what i've done instead of look what I, god still has for us to do i think a lot of people just like as todd spoke today i think a lot of people maybe just come here and do the motions um usually in a in a large church setting that's kind of the the case and I think there'd be something that he had addressed to them as well. You know, you can be doing all of these things, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. Yeah. It's worthless. Remember me. Remember that I am your true love. What do I think of Cornerstone? The well, wonderful what, what church. Is, okay. Do you think Jesus thinks that? Well, I go to Discovery Church. Okay. I think there's probably a lot of people 
who are look, lukewarm in their faith, but then you also see the people who are on fire and who are uh, really serving God and all that they do. And so I, I think it would be mixed. He'd probably be happy. What would he be happy about? That we're going to church to learn about him. Get that message in your head, bring it to your heart, and take it to your feet and do something with it. Okay, let's have a quieter life. Let's uh, spend more time praying, more time sitting, less time doing, uh, more time, you know, uh, having God overwhelm our hearts. <laughs> I love the one I go to Discovery. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, just, we're asking that question. This week I went around to the pastoral staff and some of the elders, and I just said, you know, what, what do you think Jesus would say to us? And I got, I got some really uh, uh, neat ones. I think one guy said to me, he goes, you know what? He goes, I think, I think of how much I love Cornerstone and how much I see these people that are just serving Jesus and, and, and changing their life to be about what Jesus is doing. And he says, I, re- I really do think a lot of it is is just – as we stand in front of the Lord one day, I really do believe there's some, some aspects of Cornerstone. We said, I, just, I think God would be pleased. Um, one of the pastors said he's found that the Cornerstone tends to be a safe place. Um, and he said that can be a good thing because a lot of people do come in, and as they come in, they get to deal with some of the problems that are going on in their life. But the thing about a church that's a little bit larger, too, is you can come in and you can kind of hide. You can kind of just sit in the pews every single week and, and never be challenged to live your faith, faith out in that kind of a way. Uh, what was also set up there, they love how that we have sent missionaries all over the world and how we've cared for them. Um, the way that we've given like crazy to so many different things. Uh, one guy said one of the things he's concerned about is that living in our culture, living in the now, we tend to be there versus the living for Christ's kingdom. He sees that we sometimes waver in that. Another guy thought, you know what, sometimes we, we have a heart for the lost, but at different times we really do waver for those that don't know Jesus Christ. One guy said, he goes, you know what, he goes, I, I feel like sometimes we treat our involvement at Cornerstone like a gym membership. Um, another guy just said, man, I love Cornerstone, the generosity of who we are. Another guy said, just part of living in, in the Southern California culture, he said, probably one of the things we face is we're just too busy Another guy said, you know, at times I worry we're a little bit not, we're not very welcoming. That we, we get in and we get these tight friendships, but it's sometimes hard for others to get into these friendships. Another one said that his major heart and concern is that we never lose our deep abiding love for Jesus. And so those are just kind of some of the things that we think about, maybe what Jesus would, would say to us. But again, we've, we've walked through these churches, and the thing about these seven churches that are representative in Rev- Revelation 2 through 3 is that all seven of them represent probably not only churches throughout time, but churches all over the world. In other words, there's some churches that go through persecution. There's some churches like Laodicea that just have a lot, and so they're going to have different struggles and temptations. But the one thing that I've heard over and over is, is that, you know what, man, I just feel like each of these churches in different ways, I could really relate to both some of the good things and some of the things that were, were kind of the concerns of Jesus Christ and what he told the churches. But I, I think the one thing that, that, that it needs to be maintained, whenever I travel, a lot of times I'll travel and I'll be speaking to pastors. And I'll hear people, I'll hear pastors complain about their churches. And the one thing is one of the shepherds here that I'm not afraid to say to you is, is that if we've ever gotten to a place that we shouldn't get, gotten to a place where Jesus would look down and have concern upon us, 
the place he always starts is with the pastors. I have no place to complain about this church because I'm one of the shepherds. That's my job. And wherever we we go as a church, oftentimes, again, I have to make sure that the things that we're talking about come back on me. But there's another aspect of it where we need to follow. Now, I think this is kind of the letter that, that as I was sitting down thinking, again, this isn't, this isn't divine. Jesus didn't hand this to me. He didn't hand it to the cool hipster John that was on the, on the screen to hand to me. But this is like something in my head that as I kind of wrote down and I thought, what would Jesus say to us? This is the letter I thought he would write to us. To the messenger of Cornerstone write, the words of the Son of Man whose voice roars like many waters who unites his children together in one mind with one spirit and who gives life abundantly to all that all to come to him. I know your works. You understand the seriousness of my word. You demonstrate it by your willingness to live what has been preached, especially when it pertains to the poor or the needy, the underprivileged and those at risk in this world. You have been a beacon of truth to my church around the world, revealing many blind spots, proving with your generosity that there's something more important than this present life. Do not lose this testimony. You have rightly managed the wealth I gave you for my kingdom, but you're still lacking. In the midst of your sacrifice and labor, some of you have lost sight of the great commandment. In your study of my word, you've learned about me and about my mission for you, but you have struggled to truly know me intimately and personally. All of you learned about my mission, but some of you have chosen to live for me all by yourselves. Others of you have chosen to live my mission with believers, but you have stunted your growth and my mission by preferring to put people around you that are just like you, never stretching your love and growing in endurance by loving those hard to love. Your eyes have seen physical poverty that permeates this fallen world and you have responded. However, too many are blind to the spiritual poverty all around you in Simi Valley. And you've failed at times to respond in love to the destitution of your families and your neighbors and friends and coworkers, those who are perishing. Look, this is why at times you lack joy. Because only in my presence is there fullness of joy, not only in the new creation when I come back, but right now. This is why you lack endurance, because some of you have found it easier to complain, gossip, or even walk away from each other than to love one another into strength. This is why you lack true joy, because you aren't hearing the amazing sound of the pitter-patter of new believers' feet among you, because you aren't loving the lost by announcing to them through word and deed my good news. Therefore... Repent. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Remember how I loved you first. Love as I loved you. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to enter my everlasting love with those I've loved. See, I think there's some things about Cornerstone, I really do believe this, that God would just be thrilled about, that Jesus would be thrilled about. I think there's aspects that I talked about kind of in what I wrote, this just reverence for God's word. I've always loved that when I come up here to preach this word, there are people in this place that take me serious. Not because I'm necessarily the one to be serious about, but because you really believe this is God's word. In fact, one of the things I always tell people that if they're going to come here and guest speak is I say, be careful what you preach at Cornerstone because the people here might actually do it. I'm serious. 
I go preach at other churches. It's like I can't wait to get back to, to Cornerstone because when I go preach at other churches, oftentimes I just find this deadness. But yet even this, this today, after I get done preaching, there's already people going, gosh, what do we need to do to live more of what Jesus Christ has called us to be about? I love that. I love the fact that over the last few years, we've, we've put in front of this church the poor and the needy and the underprivileged and those that are at risk, the ones that Jesus talked about, and even all throughout the Old Testament that God talked about. We put those people in front of this church, and this church has responded I love the fact that as we put it out there, that you all have even, some of you, taken orphans into your house. Foster care. Every single Sunday I go out in that lobby, I'm always finding a new foster kid that some family has brought in. You've adopted kids from around the world. Not only that, but I've seen how different people in here have gone to those that are even poor and abused within our own culture, but even those enslaved around the world, whether it's childhood slavery or even sex slavery. Man, I think Jesus would look at this, this history of us just seeking to honor Christ in regards to this, and I think he would come up amongst us and say, well done. I think he would come up and tell us well done about uh, the way that we see God as a global God and our heart to send people around the world. I think he would, he would love the fact that, he, that we understand that God isn't just the God of Simi Valley. He is Jesus Christ who wants to be spread to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. But I really do think the thing that Jesus would, would come back to us on is I think the first one is, is just our commitment to Jesus and the gospel. I think sometimes we can be like Ephesus. I think we've worked hard and we've done all these things and in the end of it, we've cheered for the various things that we've done, but I think sometimes in the middle of it, we just lose sight of just this pure devotion to Jesus and to one another. I think just that intimacy, that knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, being his word, just times of prayer, not only alone, but with other groups of people where we just seek to know him, not do things for him, but just, just, just know him. I think the commitment to the body, kind of like with Sardis, I think sometimes the people of Sardis thought themselves a little more important than they ought to be, and they forgot about the importance of each other, taking care of each other at different times, because, you know, I don't know you. This is just a big church. Somebody else has you. I think the other part of it that's kind of stuck out to me lately, and one that I think Jesus would really want to talk with us about, is that we would ever be like Laodicea and forget that there is a lost and a dying world that we need to impact. See, what I want to show you today that it's really important is toothpicks. Just so you know, to find this many boxes of toothpicks took me a long time. In Simi Valley right now, there's 120,000 people. Now, 120,000 people may not seem like a lot when you compare the fact that we live on the behemoth that's on the other side of us that has in the millions. But in Simi Valley, there are 120,000 people. And from what we kind of know generally from statistics inside of a a community like Simi Valley, about 12 to 15% of people are, are saved, are born again. They know Jesus Christ. So what that means is is if this represents Simi Valley, all these toothpicks here, if I removed five different boxes, that would represent the people that today, if Jesus Christ were to come back, would know Jesus Christ. 
Each of these boxes represent approximately 3,000 people. There's 750 toothpicks in here. If I broke them into four parts, there would be about 3,000 people that would be represented by this particular box. 3,000, if you remember right, on 9-11 were the amount of people that perished that day about when planes flew into those two buildings. 3,000 people that were just dead. Now, generally what we do as Christians is we go hang out over here and we worship at our various places, Cornerstone, Discovery, Grace Brethren, all these other churches, and we just totally dig hanging out with each other. And we sing songs on Sunday. We talk about Jesus. All the while, about 105,000 people in Simi Valley today, if they were to die, would spend an eternity apart from Jesus Christ in hell. Now, the Calvinist, which I tend to be a little bit more Calvinistic, he'd go, well, you know, that's just how God wants it. And I'd say, you've got to be kidding me. See, this group of people over here were created by God, the Bible talks about, to tell God how wonderful he is, but there's 105,000 people that don't. And all the while, not only that, but then we break up on Sundays and we kind of go back, but what we do is uh, we go off into our communities. So we have a few over here. Then we have a few over here. Then we have a few over here. And oh, we have great Bible studies. We tell each other how wonderful Jesus is. We kind of just spread all over Simi Valley doing our thing. And in the middle of all of it, oftentimes we're not even realizing that God designed and put his church together to call people to himself, to live for him, to worship him. But uniquely, Jesus called us as a group of people to call out to this group of people and beg them to come to know him but I would venture to guess that a vast majority of us didn't wake up this morning impacted by the mission that Jesus left us. See, if it was really good worshiping that Jesus wanted us to do on this earth, I've heard some of you sing. You need to go to heaven. (laughs) Really good Bible studies, heaven. He left us here for a unique purpose. And that is to be his people to the world, to beckon them, to call them, to not live good lives because somehow we're trying to please God. Listen to me. When you came to know Jesus Christ, those of you in this room, when you came to know him, he is making you. He is making you clean. He died for you. Therefore, you are clean. You don't have to earn anything with God anymore. You're one of his kids. But now what he's doing is calling you to stay on the same mission to which Jesus came to this earth. See, I think one of the reasons that we probably forget about the mission that that Jesus has called us to is we forget to do something that's really important. Forget to call call each other to remind each other what we're to be about. 
And then pretty soon what happens, we don't mean to, but we, we, we totally then just kind of start going off into our various lives. And even too, we want to live for him, but we're not beckoning each other back to the reality that we are left here as a group of people to display God to the world, to call them to himself. And I think one of the greatest things that Jesus Christ left us, because I think the question is then, okay, if that's true, how do we keep on track? And I think one of the best things that Jesus left us was this thing called the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is found in Luke 22. That's where we're going to go today, and that's where we're going to try to build this case about how do we stay focused on Jesus' mission. If Jesus has, has called us to himself, and he's made us clean, made us acceptable in front of God, not only made us acceptable, but called us to be one of God's very own kids, made us one of his own, how is it then that we as a group of people are going to stay focused on what Jesus wants us to do? Now, one of the things obviously is God's word, the way that it does that, our fellowship together, but there seems to be something about this Lord's Supper thing that Jesus said, I want this to keep going for a purpose. I want you guys to keep practicing this for a purpose. And I know some of you are going to say, yeah, but you took it away from Sunday mornings. And I'm going to say back to you, we're going to do it this morning. So I'm trying to be pastor of the year, and so I'm bringing this communion back into what we're doing on Sunday. You're welcome. But it doesn't just have to happen here. See, we need to be doing this, and I'm going to explain why we got to do this, why it's so important. We need to be involved in this. We need to be doing it inside of our community groups, our our Bible studies, our, our marriages, even at family meals together, and even husbands, when you take your wife out for a romantic meal, I dare you to look at her and go, hey, baby, let's celebrate communion. Nothing says I love you like the Lord's Supper. But I happen to think that the Lord's Supper has within it something that is so romantic. Because what it's about is what we're about. Your marriage is to be about, your family is to be about, your friendships are to be about. That this Lord's Supper, what it does is it beckons us back to the mission that Jesus called us for. Now in Luke 22, here's what happens. Jesus comes in and they're getting ready to come into Jerusalem and they're getting ready to celebrate uh, specifically the Passover. And so with it, what happens in verse 8 is Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter and John, I want you to go into town and I want you to prepare the Passover meal. Now they had come all the way from Galilee and so in other words, Peter and John are probably looking at him like, you gotta be kidding me. Where are we gonna find a place to celebrate the Passover meal? And Jesus, being who Jesus is, makes divine arrangements in ways that they'll never understand. But he said to them, that they said to him, verse 9, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, verse 10, behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, you've got to think the apostles are looking at him going, you've got to be kidding me. But at that culture, at that time, men did not carry the water. In fact, it was unheard of for a man to carry the water. The women carried the water. And so what Jesus was saying to me, look, there will be a guy in the middle of all these groups of people. When you see him carrying the water, that's the guy to go find, and he will take you to the house where we're going to celebrate this meal together. Now, you've got to understand something. 
None of these guys had any clue what Jesus was setting up for them. All they knew, they were celebrating this feast of the Passover, something that got established way back within the Old Covenant when Moses was pulling the people, when he was pulling them out of Egypt. And in Exodus, God tells his people, look, in order to be saved, in order to be preserved from what I'm about to do, taking the firstborn amongst you, you need to take blood and you need to put it across your doorposts and the sides. And I want you to know that when I come across that, when I see that blood, I will pass over you. And so with it, that's what they thought they were doing. They thought they were going back to remember what God had accomplished within the Passover. Well, finally, they find a place that they were going to go. And it says down in verse 12, he will show you this large upper room furnished, and I want you to prepare it there. The upper room is the place where oftentimes you'll see the pictures, you know, of the, of the like, gaunt Jesus and all his apostles sitting there laying on each other. They probably weren't like that. They were probably these massive fishermen. That's who most of them were. And they were going in and they were going to prepare this feast for everyone to celebrate. The upper room discourse, sometimes you'll hear people talk about in John 13 through 17, it is the discussion of what took place in the preparation of this meal. And it says, when all the guys got there, it says, when they went and found it, they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, they finally got there and they reclined at the tables and the apostles, in verse 14, are with Jesus. Now, what else took place in this is that as these men were around there, before they would celebrate the meal, somebody would go around and he would, he would wash feet, he would wash hands, and oftentimes they would wash the face. They would prepare themselves for the meal. And when all these guys showed up, in John 13 we learn that Jesus Christ puts a towel around himself and he begins to wash their feet. Now, first of all, all the guys were flipping out by this because a servant is supposed to do that. And they had no clue what was on Jesus' mind. I mean, think about this. The very next day, he was going to go and be punished and abused and die and carry the weight of the sins upon him. And here's Jesus in the midst of all this, knowing what's about to take place because he's trying to teach them what his mission is about. And he gets down on his hands, he gets down with a towel, and he starts to wash their feet. Finally, he has them around the table. They're ready to eat. And look at verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He said, I have been waiting 33 or 34 years to get to this point. I couldn't wait for this night. I couldn't wait to celebrate it with you. I couldn't wait to teach you something so important about my mission. And right now is the idea is he's teaching them what it's to be about and what he's going to accomplish. Verse 16, he says, For I tell you, I'm not going to eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says, Listen. I'm never, ever going to celebrate this Passover, this meal with you, the one that I'm about ready to celebrate with you until I come back one day. Now, you know, again, the apostles in this night, their heads are just swimming, wondering, what in the world is he even talking about? Not only that, but he goes on in verse 17, and it says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Now, probably what's happening here is that in the middle of of this gigantic feast, this Passover feast, Jesus Christ is taking one of the first of the four cups that they would celebrate at the Passover. They would would grab this first cup and they would bring it up to him. And this is water, but it's close enough. So they would bring it up. And what this first cup was called was the cup of thanksgiving. And they would pass the cup around to everybody. And what it was about was just thankfulness for God's delivery from Egypt. Probably a little bit more time passed and we come to the second cup. The second cup's not recorded in the book of Luke nor in any of their other counts. But the Jewish people would have celebrated the second cup which is called the cup of freedom which was all about the deliverance of God that not only did he pull them out of Egypt but he set them free. He made them out from underneath the people of Egypt. So more time took place in that meal. Everybody just kind of sitting there. And then finally, in verse 19, it says, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now imagine that. These guys are hearing about Jesus going, coming back and leaving and all these little things that they're hearing about. In the middle of all of this feast, he suddenly grabs bread. And you know, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he used these little teaching examples. So they're wondering, what in the world is this one about? And he grabbed the loaf that was probably at the table that was part of the meal that they were eating. And he started to pass it around, but he wanted them to know something. This loaf that I'm about to hand around to you represents something important. It represents my body. The thing about the body that he's going to talk about with this that's so very important is that this meal that was celebrated with it, it was celebrated, now what he's saying is is that it's about ready to absorb the abuse that you guys can't absorb. We have offended a holy God. That's one component of this gospel. We've offended this holy God. And that the only means by which now this can ever be taken care of because of what Adam and Eve have done, what everyone has done throughout time, the only way that this can ever be taken care of is that I had to come to earth, I had to take on flesh, I had to live the life that I lived, and I'm now standing in front of you now and I'm telling you that I'm about ready to absorb something that none of you can absorb, only I can, and this is what this bread represents. Later on in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to talk, not only does it represent Jesus' body, but it represents all of us. Because see, the body of Jesus, Jesus coming to this world, and, and the word is called incarnation, of God fully becoming man, wrapping himself in flesh, had within it a goal, a goal of loving us incredibly. And when he held that bread in front of them, nobody knew what he was talking about. What he's saying was, I'm setting for you an example of what love looks like. I'm going to stand in in your place and absorb what you can't. And then I'm going to call you to love the world in the same way that I loved you. Now, we can't absorb the wrath of God, but we can bring this message the Bible talks about that you are, you are right with God if you believe in Jesus Christ. See, I don't even know how many in here are followers of Jesus Christ, but let me just tell you something. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are not right with God. In fact, the way the book of Romans talks about it is, is you are currently at war. You're an enemy of God. 
But Jesus Christ came and absorbed what we couldn't. Now, all of you that are believers out here, you're right with God. Amen? Okay, just wondering. (laughs) We're right with God. The king of the universe. The Holy One. And not only are we right with Him, the Bible talks about in, in Romans 8 that we're not just right with Him, there's now therefore no condemnation because Jesus absorbed it all. And now I can actually call Him Father. I can call Him Daddy. See, when we hold that bread, it holds within it this amazing concept, not just the work of Jesus, but now the mission to which Jesus has called us to, that if God called Jesus to this mission and then adopted us into this family, he's calling us to the same type of mission of loving people in that kind of way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have the ushers, if you could, go back, and I'd love for you to just get the bread. And what I want you to do is I'm going to have everybody distributed out from amongst everybody. Now, here's what I want you to do. For those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ in here, we're about to hand it out, and please feel free to partake of the bread. Partake of it with joy. Oftentimes people come into this, and it's oftentimes more a sign of, you know, I just, I feel guilty for what I'm about to do. Listen to me. You don't have to feel guilty to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus paid it all. And so now as a group of people... You can with confidence approach the throne of grace and you can rejoice in the fact that Jesus has paid for your sins. Now we do need to make sure that there's there's nothing between us and God or us and other people and so I'm going to give you just one one minute while the bread's being passed around and what I want you to do is, is I want you to spend just a little bit of time making sure are you prepared to take this? Is there anything in your life that would keep you or, or hinder you in any kind of way from celebrating because this relationship with God is not correct, I need to go to Him and deal with sin or this relationship with other people is not correct? So the next minute is all yours. The bread's going to be coming around. And just prepare yourself to take this this bread together, okay? The next minute's all you. Now, with the people around you, here's the question I want you to talk about and ask one another. What do you appreciate most about Jesus taking on flesh for you? Just as you get a chance, just talk with people, talk with somebody you know, even some of you risky ones can talk with those that you don't know. But just ask the question of each other. What do you appreciate about Jesus Christ taking on flesh for you? The next few minutes are just yours while we get the bread all passed out. The Bible says that 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 bread represents something powerful. That we've been made into one body. And when we take it together, not only are we thankful for what Jesus Christ has done, but when we put that bread in our mouth, We're telling God and we're telling the world we're on Jesus' mission. That in the same way he came and incarnated himself, the way that he came to love others, that when we take it together, we're saying, thank you for loving me. And now we're saying to this whole world, we're saying together that we're one loaf, we're one group of people that are now going to take the same love that was given to us to this world. When he says, this do in remembrance of me, he's beckoning us back and not letting us forget that was the mission that I've had from the beginning, that I might come to this world that was lost and dying and explain to them who I am and how I might now enter into right relationship with the God of the universe. So with that bread in your hand, if you're somebody 
that has chosen to follow Jesus and somebody that is thankful for what Jesus has done in your life and is somebody that now wants to take to this world, to take amongst all of God's people and proclaim to them the goodness of this incarnation of God taking on flesh and absorbing the wrath of God, this do in remembrance of Jesus. Let's take it together. God, thank you so much for sending your son. God, as we get nearer and nearer to Christmas, I get so excited about talking about what you did in coming to us. That God, all the ills of our culture, all the things that are wrong, you came not just to save us, but God, you came us to represent your, came to us to represent yourself and to, to right that which was wrong. God, the gospel is so huge, and thank you so much that Jesus Christ accomplished what we couldn't, that he, he set all of creation straight and us straight because of his work. We love you so much. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Now, I didn't stop there. See, verse 20, this is what he says next. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, when he held up the third cup, what that cup was was, was something a little different. The cup at that point was called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption was, was known as a blessing that was given kind of towards the near, the near the end of the celebration, and he would hold it up in front of everybody. And the person that was leading the Passover feast would hold up this cup and say this statement. He'd say, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he would pass it around for the people to drink. So Jesus stands up amongst them. You've got to understand something. It's already been, already been kind of confusing for the apostles that have been there. And he stands up with this cup, and he holds it up in front of all of them. And instead he says, verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All the apostles would have gone, what? No, no, where's the cup of blessing thing, this cup of the creator of the fruit of the vine? Instead, it seems what he did is he broke off, and he was going to give them something new about this cup of redemption. See, probably what he was doing was, is he was, he, was, he was changing what was taking place in there. He wanted to understand that as we celebrate this, the new covenant is all different. In fact, what it's beckoning back to is in Jesus' day, when a, when a man wanted to marry a woman, what he and his dad would do is, is they would go off to the woman's house. When they got to the house, they would sit together with the, the young woman and her father, and they would begin to negotiate what was called the bride price. The young woman's father would ask for a large amount of money or other valuables, uh, animals, different things like that because he believed that his daughter was dear and precious to him. And so they would sit and they would negotiate this this price and and as they finally came to this this final cost, this price, it it was probably around the price of a new home at that time is what it meant to the dowry that would be given to the father on behalf because of how precious the daughter was. After negotiating, they would pour a, gap, a cup of wine. The dad would pour it, and then he would hand it to the son. And his son then would go and take the cup and hold it out to the young woman, and he would say this to her. He'd say, this cup I offer to you. He would stand there, and he would hold it out to her. It was his way of saying, look, I, I love you, and I offer to you my life. The young woman was then at this crossroads of a decision. 
She could say, no, I don't want you in your life. Or she could take the cup and lift it to her mouth. And by drinking it, what she was saying was, I accept your life and I give you mine. See, what Jesus was doing in essence was he was saying to them, will you be my spiritual bride? Will you be the one that I devote myself to? They somewhat probably understood it as they passed it around, but what he was saying to them was something so big as by drinking this, what he's saying to them is you're saying back to Jesus, I humbly accept this gift. I gladly take your life and I give you mine. See, what the Lord's Supper is all about is not only discussing the body of Jesus, but the the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That my sin has to be accounted for, but this cup also represents something that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. He talks about this idea that all of you in here that know Jesus, you were bought with a price. Therefore, the way we're supposed to live our lives is an understanding that my life is no longer my own. I am receiving Christ's life and I'm giving him mine. See, this is why this is so crucial that we keep doing this and doing this and doing this. We're stating to Jesus that, Jesus, the work that you accomplished, I'm choosing to join you. I'm no longer living for my things and my wants, that when you saved me and you gave me everything that it was to be one of your kids, to be one of your followers, I'm saying to you, I give up everything that I am and I'm following you wholeheartedly. We did that when we were baptized. That's what baptism signifies when we first come to know Jesus, but he wants us to keep doing this over and over and over again because if you're like me, you forget. And so I'm gonna have them come now with the cup and I'm just gonna have them start handing it out to all of you. Now what I want you to do is I want you to talk amongst yourselves and I want you to ask this question. What do you appreciate most about the gift of Jesus Christ's shed blood. I want you to talk about the cup and ask the question and and answer the question amongst yourself. What do you appreciate about what Jesus Christ did in regards to that? So the next few moments are all yours to talk. Think with me for a second. Those guys had no clue the horrors of what was about to happen the next day, did they? They sat there in that room and they were trying to figure out what in the world Jesus was talking about and they had no clue the horrors of what was about to take place. But before that even took place, Jesus was looking down at them and asking them, will you humbly accept the gift? Not only will you humbly accept the gift, but will you take my life and will you give me yours? Will you stay on my mission is what he's asking them. They had no clue that he was getting ready to leave. He was getting ready to exit and he was going to unleash them. And we know later on in the book of Acts that when they received the Holy Spirit, they got unleashed to accomplish what they never imagined that they would accomplish. And the next day when he paid for what he needed to pay for, when he accomplished the task to which the God, Father had given him, 1 Peter 3, it says he was yanked through the angelic realm proclaiming the reality that by the work of Jesus, Jesus won. He conquered sin and death and Satan. Then when he rose three days later and appeared to 500 people saying, see, I told you so. 
And Jesus promised he wasn't going to drink of this vine until he returned. But if anybody on this planet that should be smiling with permagrin, it's those that have been saved from the horror that Jesus absorbed. We gotta stay focused on that, that this one that he calls us to have relationship with, this blood opened that way that we can boldly approach that throne of grace. This blood bought us into a new family where all of us now are brothers and sisters in Christ because of the work of Jesus. And this blood unleashes us to accomplish what he's called us to be about. So let me ask you a question. Do you humbly accept this? Do you humbly accept the gift of Jesus? Do you trade his life for yours? Then in remembrance of Jesus, let's drink together. Father, thank you for the shed blood. Thank you that it wasn't blood of goats or blood of oxen. Instead, Father, it was the blood of your own son. God, would you please give us a thrill and a joy because of that. In your precious name we pray, amen. Now here's the last thing. He said, and also Paul includes this at the end of it in Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. he says this statement. He says, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me just make sure everybody understands this. Jesus is coming back. Yes, Now, here's the question, though. All of Matthew, especially when you get to 24 and 25, he's coming back, but will he find us faithful? He's called us to a mission. He's called us to a mission, and and I'm just telling you, all of you in this room, don't feel guilty that you live in Simi Valley. I used to feel guilty I live here. I always thought, oh my gosh, unless I'm living in a dump in India, that there's something wrong with me. Now, he may call me to go to that dump in India, and you know what? I may go. But Simi Valley is what he's called us to, and let me tell you something. There's 105,000 people that Jesus Christ has asked us to impact. We can't quit. We can't get soft and comfortable We can't get into our community groups or our Bible studies or whatever it is that you gather in and just sit there and be just kind of numbed into the reality that Jesus Christ hasn't left us to do something. If he wanted us to stay to do worship, he would have have called us home a long time ago. If he he wanted us to have great Bible studies, he would have called us home a long time ago. He has left us on this planet to proclaim the good news to all. Jesus called those guys to be fishers of men and the question I'm asking us is cornerstone in light of everything we've done in Revelation 2 and 3. Are we as a group of people, not just individuals, but we as a group of people, are you ready to go fish? Are we ready to go out to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends and yes, even our own kids? Are we ready to go do that because I believe that's what Jesus has called us to, amen? As you're out there, celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm serious. Husbands, have a romantic evening and go, baby. Let's celebrate. Pull out the, the, the vine and, and pull out the bread and just absolutely blow your wife away as you reconnect to what's most important. I'll say this the way I always love to finish because I mean this. I love this church. 
God isn't done with us yet. He's got things for us. The question is, are we going to be found faithful? Amen? Father, thank you for everyone that's here. God, you, these are your precious ones, your blood-bought ones. Help us to never forget, never, ever forget what you've left us here to be about, your business, your will, your good, your glory. Father, we truly do believe that we were designed to worship you, but Father, I believe that we need to call over 100,000 other people to come and to worship the Savior of the universe, our Father. In your precious name we pray.